Hello, friends, and welcome to Backstory. I'm your producer, Alex Sisk, filling in for regular host, Alex Roberts. Reminder that StarCrossed, the two-player game of forbidden love, can now be ordered online at bit.ly slash starcrossedrpg or at your local game store. You can also ask your game store to pre-order a copy of For the Queen, our host's newest game of love, duty, and devotion. Or find it at bit.ly slash for the queen. Today's guest is game designer and writer Camden Wright. His design work has spanned absurdity, biting satire, and now painfully moving play. He and Alex talk GMing in different social spaces, the delicate lines we walk when role-playing sensitive material, and the ways in which we understand works and the people who make them. Let's jump right in. been a stay-at-home parent for the last uh, 10 years, aside from being a, a technical writer. And um, so I worked, I did a lot of volunteering in uh, in the classroom and with kids of all types, which is kind of where my love of telling their stories came from. Okay, interesting. I mean, I would say that stay-at-home parent is possibly one of the most important social services there is, but... <laughs> I, I always I always said that I was incredibly lucky because if I won the lottery immediately, I would still keep doing the same job, maybe in a nicer house or with a nicer car. But, um, not a lot of people get to say that. You know, I would do the same thing tomorrow that I'm doing today. That is kind of amazing. Yeah. Wow. What a great reflection. That's gonna make that's gonna make me think about what I'm doing on a daily basis. <laughs> uh, so you mentioned you're also a technical writer, which. Um, would be a very useful set of skills for writing, say, technical documents such as uh, RPG rules. Yes, in fact, it it is. Um, I have uh, I've made use of those skills coming into the game industry, and um, even my technical writing is way more mushy, touchy feely than it should be. So, my game rules reflect that. But yeah, I mean, what it, what is like the balance there when you think about? Like this is something this is something that I've struggled with is like making it have some flavor to it while still being like a useful document. I usually I mean, doing the technical writing and I've done grant writing and some other things, it gave me a structure um, to work from so that I had a foundational set of skills, which uh, I think still served me well. And even when I just freeform write and it's just as, you know, like I just throw as much emotion and what I'm trying to convey down on the page, it still manages to keep a certain level of structure. And I mean, I always have to go back and then, you know, hey, this is for people who don't live inside your brain, Camden, and go through all those those steps. <laughs> it's like, it would, my, my life would be a lot easier if everyone had the exact same brain that I do, uh, which it's probably a good thing that they don't. Um, but uh, it's uh, that, that process is I start at one place. I've got those skills uh, that developed over years, uh, and which always kind of remain. And uh, it makes it easier when I go back to to make it a, a useful document. Yeah. 
this is something that I've been getting really curious about lately. Um, when you have the kind of baby little or like egg egg of an idea for uh, either a game or a game mechanic, are you trying to run it for people? And then when it starts to take shape, you're like, okay, I need to write this down. Or are you writing something and then when it gets, waiting for it to get to kind of a playable state? I write in my head first. So um, I'll uh, jot down a note, um, like li- literally the title of a game or one sentence that like speaks to the emotional intention of what I want to do. And then in my head, I will iterate over and over and over again. And then it'll come to a point where I can write down enough where I could run it for somebody. Uh, and then that's where I go from there. Now you say emotional intention. Are you writing or designing emotions first? Like, are you thinking about the emotional experience first? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm a big believer in the things. I want to know what the emotional intention of the game is. And then I know what kind of game it is. I know that that informs the story that I want to tell. Um, I don't really have a game until I have an emotional intent for it. Interesting. Now, when you are deciding what you want to play, are you asking the same questions? Not, well, wow, that's a really good question. I was about to say no, but absolutely I am. (laughs) (laughs) You totally, you got me in one. Um, Yeah, I do. There's even whether it's a, a silly game or I want something that is uh, more impactful. I do I do spend a lot of time thinking about that. There's, there's times that I, I'll play a game just to spend time with people, specific people. But when I'm picking something that I want to play for myself, yeah, it does start with that same emotional intent. So when, when I heard about your the, the new game that is coming out soon, One Child's Heart, I feel like I got the emotional intention of that game. And it well, actually, why don't you just give us the two-sentence pitch on, on One Child's Heart? All right. Uh, it's a game where uh, players have a opportunity to uh, inhabit mental health or child welfare professionals who uh, enter into the memories of a child that is in crisis. And in, from the inside, they have an opportunity to have them reframe those memories and so that the child has uh, more tools going forward in their life. So this game scares me deeply, deeply terrifies me. And I I think of someone who has played, like who has like played hard, you know, who's been like, I I want the LARP that's going to make me cry. And I want the, this and that, and, you know, just, just punch me in the heart. And now as someone who's kind of like just backing away from that, not because of anything traumatic, but just, I don't know just starting to do that there's still so much happening in the realm of like what sounds to me like a pretty emotional of, of emotional intensity but it it sounds to me like there's actually more that you're looking for than just the feels as some like to say yeah th- this i think one of the biggest misconceptions of the game is that it's about trauma and in fact, what it's about is hope and human connection. It's, it's a game about empathy and the power of taking a moment to listen to someone and say, you know, some of the most powerful things that we can to another person, like your life is terrible and it's not your fault. I wonder how is that reflected in the experience of the players with one another? I mean, does someone play the the child in question? I'm getting the sense not. 
No, it's uh, the person, uh, the facilitator role, um, which is called the advocate in the game. Uh, they are the the ones, the only ones playing the child. Uh, everyone else is playing the professionals that they enter into these memories. It's not time travel, so you can't save the child from the situation that they're in. All you can do is is have a conversation and try and uh, help them look at it differently. So, so I'm I'm wondering the experience of connection and the experience of empathy is it something that the players, as people, are experiencing with each other in that moment? Yes, often it it is. There is a, and I I have absolutely no doubt that you've experienced this at the table, um, where I think the the real art of games comes from, and I, and I say this a lot, is from uh, real emotions that come from imagined experiences. And this is one of those times where there is often a camaraderie between people when they're done and a real emotional investment in this imaginary child who they will never meet uh, that draws them together. When you're playtesting a game like this, what are you looking for? What What is the indicator that says I've been successful? Is it, is it that camaraderie? It, it It is. I am... People accuse me of making games <laughs> that try to make people cry, and um, that is <laughs> never ever my goal. It's like I, I try to tell them, if you cry, that's you. I mean, that's you brought your emotion and your vulnerability to it, and that's cool. And it's cool if it doesn't happen. Uh, what I want to do is see that they are affected by the story that they tell, so that. It can be that camaraderie between players. Um, it can be, you know, I'll get an email later on with from somebody that says, you know, hey, I had one woman message me that she reconnected with um, her foster daughter who she hadn't talked to in almost 20 years. Um, and I'm like, yeah. And um, a good friend of mine, after he was done playing the game, those the message that he gave to that child, he internalized that and realized that um, he could forgive himself for the choices he made while his mother was dying. And, you know, that's not me. That's them. <laughs> that's the game. But what a gift to be able to witness that at a, at a gaming table in a game of pretend. How do you hold people when taking them somewhere where that kind of big, big stuff can be going on in them? No matter no matter what I am facilitating, no matter what I'm writing, no matter what I'm doing, I take that responsibility very, very, very seriously. And inside the game, um, the game itself has built-in mini debriefs uh, in between each memory. Um, I always build in time to talk to people and communicate. Um, of course, as, um, as you might guess, there's a lot of safety built into this. But I try to treat people with the same humanity and outreach that they are this imaginary kid. And um, I want to, to be as open and vulnerable to, for them so that they can feel that safety and trust in me because you know I'm their open heart as raw as I can be. So that just that last piece is so interesting to me of being open yourself as well. Like there's a responsibility to facilitating a game like this, but there's also you you really have the potential to create a terrifying power dynamic, right? Of like I'm going to open everybody else up, but I will remain, you know, in control or on top of or above um, 
I mean, how do you navigate that, especially when you're thinking about making something that you're going to put in other people's hands to play? Yeah, uh, it is a lot of responsibility. And that is, uh, I've, I have been one of the first people to cry in a, facilitating a game of One Child's Heart um, many, many times. Um, I, uh, I remember uh, I was actually running a, at Origins in a big room full of game tables. And um, one of the players and I start uh, talking to each other, having this conversation in game, in character. And we're just bawling, continuing to have this conversation while the rest of the table is, is uh, just watching in uh, some combination of fascination and abject horror. <laughs> and... I, to, to me, and this is just me, everybody runs differently, but I want to model what I want from them. And that means um, I, I need to be in control of the situation uh, to make sure it's my job to um, to be, to enforce all of the safety tools and to make somebody, make sure that everyone is safe. I mean, that level of control, not of the story or what's happening, but I also need to be, I need them to see my heart and to know it's okay. And if they need me to trust uh, in the honesty, when I say that I am here for you, um, this is a place where you can do this. When it comes to the book itself, you know, I spend a lot of time talking about being a decent human being. And um, I, when I wrote this game, I didn't realize how much time I would need to spend teaching people empathy for an imaginary person and for each other at the table. So um, there's some mechanics built in to, to help do that. Um, as far as when the book goes out in the world, there's a, a certain amount of trust when it, when it goes out the door. Um, I mean, I'm doing everything I can to keep people safe and to keep, keep the structure of the game from keeping people from getting hurt, but you, I mean, there's only so much you can do. Um, and I'm always open to hearing better ideas. Yeah, yeah. There, there is something terrifying about that, right? About making something that you know can be beautiful and then making a decision at some point that like, okay, this is everything I can do. It's just out there now. Well, I mean, you have to have had that uh, that moment with Starcrossed as well. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So was there uh, a way in which there was, was there a moment where you, you really did say, you know, I've literally put everything I can think of down here or. I don't, I don't know if there's any point with that game or with anything that I've made where I'm like, yes, this is perfect now. And I'm never going to be, I'm never going to ever going to wish that it was any different. Like, no, for sure. And I, I also made a game that is about intimacy and care and, and closeness and love. And I actually, I don't think that those things are as dangerous as what games are usually, role-playing games are most often about, which is about like horrific violence. <laughs> so, so I, I don't know. I give myself a little bit of leeway there, but, but yeah, I mean, there was, I definitely can't think of anything else. Someday I will. Someday I'll be like, oh, I wish I'd known this and I would have put that in there, but I can't think of anything. I do what I can. And I think more importantly, like with anything, you have to play test it, right? And you have to say, okay, I see this happening and I don't see that happening. And I see these these folks getting super interested in this game and they seem to have good intentions. It seems to be very attractive to people who have what appear to be very good intentions. And like, 
Yeah. <laughs> like you say, like, you know, you, you just have to put it out there at, at a certain point. I mean, I, I, I certainly, you know, I hear and mirror a lot of that. Um, it's nothing I ever make will be good enough for me. um people are like oh you know some people have problems with it some people love you know some of the things that i do and i'll always come back to it going you know it probably could have been better if i was just you know a little more in tune or a little smarter had more experience or that's the trouble with making anything right like not only are you going to think learn more and think of something better that you could have done or could have you know included or excluded, but also like you will change as a person and your priorities will change. And that means that you would have, you know, made something completely different. Yeah, absolutely. There's uh, the dancer, Martha Graham. Uh, there's a quote that uh, I look up every once in a while and uh, she talks about uh, artists and the, see if I can remember it exactly, the queer divine dissatisfaction uh, that they have with their work <laughs> and how that keeps us uh, alive. And uh, I think that is always really spoken to me. Oh, you're right. Yes. Okay. Yes. Dissatisfaction as, as this source, as this beautiful bubbling spring of inspiration. That's how I'm going to think of it now. It's, it's beautiful. It's a good thing. It is no longer negative. <laughs> That's beautiful. It, but believe it or not, it was actually not the game a one child's heart that made me go, I should have Camden on, but actually just a very small game that you put out there for the 200 word RPG challenge not too long ago called secret person of color. Yay. I'm glad you liked that. I think, I think it's such a marvelous game. And speaking of like being as responsible as you can with games, it's, uh, it makes me wonder about game text as satire and whether a game that is designed as satire, like the text itself as satire, is is meant to be played. Is Secret Person of Color meant to be played? It is. Uh, it is playable. It is not necessarily designed to be played because, I mean, I would love to see it played. <laughs> I would actually absolutely love. I mean, like, give you know, I'll be on Team Person of Color all day. I know how this goes and. But even reading the text, the number of people that they're like, this game isn't fair. And I'm like, that's right. It's not fair. But, you know, if you're on, if you're a person of color, you can't, you literally can't win this game unless there's some sort of freak circumstance. And I was like, yeah, that's the point of the game. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I was going to say that that's part of what makes it like not really ideal to be played is because if you do, if you do have people of color on team person of color like that you know it's such an alibi for for grossness and like re-traumatization and shit yeah absolutely something that i wonder when i read that is who you really think of it as being for like is this something that was just for you to be like i have to express this somehow or is this something that you wanted people to look at and be like oh i didn't realize that or did you want people to read it and be like, yes, that's my experience. Yes. Oh my God. It always happens like that. It was, I, I wrote the idea. This was another thing. I just wrote down secret person of color or secret person of color in this uh, notebook that I keep with ideas. Uh, it was after Gen Con, um, uh, after several horrifically racist experiences during the course of uh, the four or five days that I was there. 
And it was the gamut of uh, people uh, yelling racial slurs at me randomly while I was walking through the halls of Gen Con and uh, people who were consider themselves allies um, diminishing uh, my ethnicity. Um, you know, one person actually saying, uh, aren't they going to be disappointed when they see you? Uh, and I was volunteering for an organization as a person of color. And so this game was sort of, uh, I guess, was th- throwing shade at, at those kind of people. Um, but it's also, um, I was surprised at how many people reached out after I did it and were like, oh my God, this is my life. Um, and they really got it. And I was really happy at how many, I'm going to be frank, how many white people it made really, really uncomfortable. Oh, Good. <laughs> That's excellent. <laughs> yeah. So they sat down and they read this and they're like, they just could not wrap their, their minds around that this, you know, that any game would be like this. And I'm like, this is, you know, I've learned this throughout my life. So trust me, it can be played. Yeah. yeah. You're like, you're like, it plays. I've been play tested very thoroughly. Um it's it's occurring to me, should say for the listeners, um, Secret Person of Color is like um, it almost has this kind of like game show setup to it, feel to it, where it's like you know contestant number one is is a, a person of uh, color with a biracial identity, and uh, and then there's I'm not explaining it very well. There's kind of like two teams basically. Yeah, yeah. So um, uh, there are there are two teams. Um, so you've got I think it's the you've got the uh, average. And you've got the people of color. <laughs> and so um, if you're a person of color, uh, you go through the entire team of average and you have to convince each one that you are a person of color while following these very strict rules so that you, one, never lose your temper, two, get them to believe you, and three, um, they respond uh, in these uh, ways like telling you, uh, let's say that in my example, uh, my uh, my mother's family are all from Ethiopia. Um, so they have to tell you something like, oh, I ate in an Ethiopian restaurant once immediately upon when they believe you. <laughs> So yeah, it's but each person of color is on their own, and the average team stays as a unit the entire time. Oh, oh, I totally even like missed out on that nuance. Mm-hmm. And then once once you've gone through, you introduce the next person of color to the average side. Right, and and there's even like a point system that is like. It, it's so like visibly arbitrary is very good. And like, you know, the average team gets like five points for identifying a fake person of color successfully, you know, and, and uh, the person of color gets minus seven points for displaying any sort of anger whatsoever. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a game that I can easily be like, I don't want to play this. And I could see someone who's been playing it their entire life being like, well, you know, I would rather not either. <laughs> yeah. That would be a really good thing if we all stop playing that game. <laughs> yeah. Let's all let's put it away. It's, it's a nice example of how, cause like I said, I don't, I don't think that, that there's much more to be gained by playing the game than there is by reading it. Although I don't know, maybe if I, if I played it, maybe I would feel differently, but there's, there's obviously a lot to be gained just by reading it. Like that's something Something about making something in real life crystallized or, or, or 
really kind of identified or highlighted by by mecha mechanizing it by making it a game gamey. Were there were there other games that do this with with experiences that you have that kind of inspired that? There wasn't anything in particular, uh, any game that I played that was sort of the the catalyst for the idea. Once again, my emotional intention is how I started when I when I uh, I, I decided to enter in the the um, two hundred word RPG contest, and I thought, okay, what do I want to do? I looked through my notebook. I was like, hey, this could be a great format for a secret person of color. Now, what's the emotional intent behind that? And the emotional intent was to uh, create one a sense of empathy, and two to make non marginalized people feel uncomfortable. Right. It's, it's very satisfying to be able to make something very small that does what you want it to do. And uh, and there it is. And it's done. It's out there. Uh, I, uh, there's a friend of mine uh, who's a, a game designer that works in uh, more traditional games. But he, he told me once a long time ago, um, if you look at somebody's game, uh, you will see a lot about them. You will learn a lot about them in their design, even in ways that they never intend and um uh, and that so that got me thinking and um i realized that every single game i make is about being trapped and so secret person of color has that in that you know as uh, if you're on the person of color if you have that biracial identity you are trapped in that forever and there is no there is no um legitimate win condition for you um, one child's heart has that these uh, children are trapped in whatever life circumstances there are. It has happened. There is no getting out of it. Um, even the sillier uh, adventures and things that I've run for other systems that, um, that keeps that, that thread keeps through. And so uh, when I meet people like you, I'm really fascinated with the games that you make. I'm like, so what, what is the little through line for all of Alex's games that I haven't seen yet because I don't know her well enough. <laughs> uh, I've yeah, I I'm at least extremely aware of like how, how much of myself I'm putting on display in the games that I make, I'm like, whoops, well, here I am. Sorry, everybody. <laughs> I mean, does that make you want to be more guarded or, or, or are you thinking about it as this wonderful avenue of, of self-expression? Yeah. I, I don't feel the need to be more guarded about it at all. Um, I think that my strength in whatever I make, um, you know, I, I'm not necessarily ever going to be the the greatest master of uh, technical design or game theory. Um, I might not be the best writer of all time. I might not be the best whatever, but I can be the truest to myself. And that's what I have to offer the world is the most honest expression of my heart and the things that I want to make. So there's there's an authenticity there. There's just like an honesty. Yeah. I, I think that that's that is where a lot of beauty in all things lives. Do you encounter games that don't ring true for you that feel dishonest or inauthentic? Yeah, absolutely. There are games that when I sit down and uh, read or play, sometimes they're incredibly smart or they have or they're very clever or they're very well researched, but it doesn't feel like there is a, a piece of humanity inside of those words. And, and that, and that's okay. I mean, everybody makes different things, but 
those are the games with that humanity are the ones that I love the best. Oh, I th- I think I know exactly what you mean. This is why I've I've I so rarely find a mobile game I want to play because when when you're playing something that feels like it was made by a robot or you know optimized all the humanity out of it at least that is very dissatisfying. What are some games that feel just beautifully human and and honest to you? Uh, I am a big fan of Dialect by Thorny Games. The natural uh, rise and fall of language inside of a culture and uh, the inevitable tragedy of when that goes away um, is uh, really speaks to me. I just, uh, I adore that. Uh, not an RPG, but um, a, uh, a story game, uh, which is The Quiet Year, which, I mean, that's a very predictable answer. <laughs> um, but... Um, <laughs> There is, uh, there's a lot of, of uh, beauty in, inside of that. I mean, I, it's a game that feels like you can do whatever you want, but there's a strong emotional intent and thought and piece of Avery inside of that. And uh, uh, I, I only run a play test of it, and it could just be my experience at the table, but I played uh, BFF by Ross Kalman. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, I'll tell you what, that is one of those those situations where um, I was the most melodramatic emo teen girl I could possibly be. And uh, it was uh, it was one of those really pure bonding experiences for everyone around the table. And it just had the art and everything just had so much heart to it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's a very, yeah, <laughs> very, very sort of pure experience i think like pure in the sense of like just like 100 percent what it is and it doesn't have anything else in it you know like just very yeah i could i could go on those are all just like really lovely examples i tried i it's it's a bit of a faux pas to ask people for examples when you're interviewing them you know it kind of puts them on the spot and people don't always have a good like kind of immediate thing but uh those are three really good examples so uh thank you for that. <laughs> just kind of making up for for something i i try to avoid Re- reaching back a tiny bit there was just there was a very brief blog post that you wrote about attending GaryCon a few years back i think it was 2017 and going into something where you expected to feel like an outsider. You were like, you know, it was good. It's all these wonderful people, really great things about it. I felt, you know, I felt kind of out, you know, outside of it a bit, but I expected to because um, you were bringing, you know, a very kind of out there story game thing to, uh, you know, the heart of the dungeon crawl world. And I'm, I'm just so interested in in the idea of, going to something where you know it's not going to be your thing and you know that what you are bringing is not going to be everybody's thing. Yeah. So anyone that that knows me really, really well knows that I'm the world's grumpiest optimist. (laughs) Um, You know, there's a lot of times where I'll be like, oh, it's going to be miserable and stuff, but, you know, you got to give people a chance. So I'm going to go anyway. (laughs) And I think that I... I want people to love games and bring a humanity to games, uh, no matter what they play. And if I am unwilling to put myself out there and put myself sometimes in uncomfortable situations, then I only expose the things that I make and the ideas that I have 
to the people who are already, you know, already there. And um, some of my favorite moments have been at conventions where, you know, like if I'm at Origins at in the Games on Demand room, I know that my people are there, you know? When I am at um, a small local con in, let's say, you know, the middle of Arizona, or I'll, I'll give you an example. There, I was at a, a convention crit hit in Phoenix this last summer. And uh, the very first game that I ran was a game of One Child's Heart. Um, and it was a father um, who was, um, I would guess, this is, I'm the worst at guessing ages, but I'd say he's probably in his maybe 70s. Um, and he had two adult children with him. And they they sat down and they're like, hey. Um, and one of the sons said, I picked this game. They don't know anything about it. Um, and uh, we're, you know, we're all here to do this thing. It's like, okay, well, what games have you played? Um, well, you know, I played uh, the, the father. He said, I haven't played an RPG in over 20 years. Um, I used to play some uh, vampire. Um, I used to, you know, do dungeon crawls and things back in the day, but I have been out of the industry and everything for an extended period of time. I was like, okay, let's have a little talk about what this game is about so that you can tap out right now if this is not something you want to do. And they're, you know, they looked at me, they were uh, a little surprised and taken aback. Uh, the one son that had signed up, he was, he was excited for this clearly, but um, I got their buy-in and uh, and I felt comfortable that they knew what they were getting themselves into. And over the course of this game, um, it started out uh, in the first memory um, with the the father um, of these uh, of these two two men um, talking to the imaginary child, saying, "You know, life is going to push you down, and you got to fight, and don't give a crap, and you got to be tougher." And you know, these really. Um, common, toxic, masculine ideas. Um, and by the end of the last memory, uh, there was a moment where um, he, he took the, the, um, the child aside and said, you know, all those things I told you were wrong. And I'm, I'm really sorry that I tried to make you feel tough and push all those things down instead of um, just believing in yourself and knowing that it wasn't your fault. And watching his sons experience that, and they, um, during the course of the game, it happens a lot. People share their, their trauma and their struggles with me in the quieter moments, um, like person to person. Um, so this game was very uh, reflective uh, of their childhood experiences with this man that was sitting at the table. And for them to watch that happen and to have that moment where they are stunned that this, you know, this, this human being that they have grown up around would be capable of saying those words. That's why I go into spaces where I might be uncomfortable and might find unlikely people to play these things. That's a good reason. That's really, um, it requires a lot of faith in people. Or, or it, it requires a, a fair number of, you know, of disappointing experiences with people who you kind of expected to be on the same page as you, right? Like, I think we have... I was just going to say that's absolutely happened as well. Yeah, there is kind of a weird like, oh, this is, this is a good convention. Everyone will be good to me here and to everyone, indeed. 
Um, or, you know, everyone has been good to me here. Therefore, everyone will be good here. This is a, a place of good, people. And that's, I mean, I would cer- I certainly still prefer some spaces over others. But, but yeah, that gets complicated. That, that is complicated in the verb, not the adjective. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I, I have, um, I think that there are definitely safer places to be where you are most likely to find support and your community. But there is, I can't think of a single place where there is that utopian love and support all the way around, you know, where even if I haven't directly experienced it, um, there certainly are people who do inside of that same time frame that, you know, we're sharing a space together. Yeah. And I don't know what's, I mean, what's your feeling on desiring or expecting or shooting for, for that, for the utopia? I don't expect it in any space that I enter, but I fight for it in every space that I enter. Do you think it's possible? No, I don't think it's possible. That not a, a true utopian. Everybody is great, unless you know you're going to keep it to, um, a, unless you're going to exclude the world and you know keep it to you know six people who are all on the same page because you're all besties. But even then, you know, people hurt each other's feelings and they you know accidentally say something casually that triggers a traumatic response from somebody else. Even then, it's it's almost impossible. But that doesn't mean that you know we don't keep trying for the best that we can. I'm glad I asked rather than like toss it, trying to toss out my opinion on that because it's so it's so ill formed. <laughs> so many so many complicated feelings around that. I mean, what are some of the things that you hope for for the gaming community in in the near future? Uh, I think that some of the things. Um, some of the things are already starting to happen, uh, like just foundationally, um, more communities having uh, harassment and safety policies, I think is a great step forward. Um, I think that uh, reaction, uh, getting away from reactionary choices and communities and switching that into proactive pur- purposeful choices um, is something that I would love to see and I'm starting to see. Um, you've certainly got a couple of, of strong examples of, uh, of game spaces and conventions and even companies uh, that start out that way. And I would, I mean, like I'm always, it's for the, for the world in general. Um, my squishy answer is I, I just hope for more humanity, more understanding of the people that you're talking to and you're dealing with are humans and uh, they have value just by that fact. And, Nobody is only one thing. Nobody is a one-dimensional supervillain. Nobody is uh, a perfect paragon. Um, they are. There are people that love them. There are people that hate them. And certainly some people are more dangerous and toxic than others. Some people are more community building and kind and warm than others. But they're all humans. Can I tell you something? That, that idealization scares me more than demonization and i see plenty of both man there's like a lot of like really really holding up people as paragons of virtue and it is so tied into that that other side of the coin i don't know am i i don't know am i off is this (laughs) i don't know no 
No, I, I 100% agree to you. When we when we hold people up, and I mean, I've certainly been uh, guilty of uh, treating people that I respect as you know, sort of a theoretical human uh, that is, you know, yeah. But nobody can live up to that. And so uh, when they stumble, when they fall, it's it's it seems like it can be even harder to forgive, harder to accept, and um, and sometimes we wind up inviting dangerous people uh, into spaces because we don't take a moment to to look at them as an entire, actual, real human being. Or it's I think part of why people struggle to respond. Uh, when, you know, when somebody really screws up bad, uh, you know, or, or, you know, is really hurting people is because of this intense dissonance that people have with, oh, but that person was perfect. Uh, they, they can't be perfect and also the worst, but they're de- they'd have to have to be one. So I had to pick one and it's like, yeah. oh man, it's, yeah, it's messed up. So much messed up stuff. <laughs> there is. And I mean, um, you and I have been at conventions at the same time and um, standing back and um, watching people interact with you. Um, there are, and I, and I see it with a lot of people that I know that are, are well known in the industry. Um, there is like this entity that is Alex Roberts, mm-hmm. game designer. Um, and um, that robs people of a chance to get to know Alex. Um, the human being that is complicated and has great things and um, not so great things and gets mad about things and is happy about things in the whole package. Thank you. That's so perspective. Thank you for saying that. And, and it also, it's, it's scares the hell out of me because I don't, I don't have, you know, too many skeletons in my closet or anything and do my best to be a good person. But it's like, man, whenever someone is like, I will just say that, um, yeah, like it, it makes me nervous if if I feel like someone is idolizing me. It doesn't make me feel good because at some point I'm going to screw up. So how far am I falling for that person? I mean, there's a certain amount of emotional objectification that kind of happens inside of those spaces that I think is unhealthy for everybody. Oh, totally, totally. Because we, I think in the gaming community where we know we, we see each other online and then we see each other in these short but also very bizarre and totally like taken out of everyday context um you know really unique social spaces that we don't really know people very well right um we don't see them in their day-to-day or you know what they're up to or what what spending a lot of time with them is like and so that that really lends itself to feeling like we know someone but actually not (laughs) yeah absolutely i mean how how do you fight against that kind of thing in yourself as a fan of people, um, I try to know as little about them as possible before I get to meet them, uh, because um, I want to. I mean, there are people whose work I respect, certainly yours, but I understand that I know absolutely nothing about you, and I always try and keep that at the front of my mind. You know, we we may you know sit down and have a cup of coffee together and decide that we cannot stand to sit in the same <laughs> space together. And it doesn't mean that we don't appreciate what the other one makes, but you know those things happen. Um, or we may decide that you know, like, oh, you know what, you know, we look at the world in similar ways, or there's you know there's enough overlap in our Venn diagram. On the flip side of that, I have only just very 
I mean, the very beginning of people treating me as a theoretical person. And to be honest, I have absolutely no idea how to deal with that. I just (laughs) smile and go, you're rad. And then I run away. (laughs) It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's a weird thing to talk about because in order to, in order to speak on that, you have to then like believe that you are famous in some way or that there are people idolizing you in some way. And then it's like, well, I don't, I don't know if that's technically true. And well, there, there are people that appreciate you. And I think that's all. Well, I'm, I meant anyone sharing knowledge on anything like this. I'm not even talking about myself. And so it's, 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 a, it's a really weird thing, I, which is why I think we all need to work on, you know, maybe being fans of stuff, but definitely not being fans of, of people because I think it's easier to figure out on the on this side of it rather than on the person with fame side of it. Yeah. I mean, I I, I agree with that like 100%. Be a fan of the things that I make and uh, maybe you, you and I can become friends or maybe we don't, but don't be a fan of me. <laughs> I'm just a, I'm just a person. Yeah. I mean, we could we could talk for another hour about the concept of fandom, which is it's just as complex, but uh, but I think that's a, that's a safe first step. So, Camden, Iron's in the fire right now. It seems like you're you're very focused on One Child's Heart. Um, that's coming to Kickstarter soon, I think. That's awesome. And I don't know. Is there anything else that's on the horizon? What are you up to these days or in the near future? Uh, well, I've uh, as much as I love uh, One Child's Heart and as personal as it is to me as a, a game and a story. It's also not the only thing I ever want to create. Um, so I'm always pushing myself and uh, I've got uh, more games that are, you know, half baked or two thirds baked, and, you know, that have an emotional intent and I've started to see the light of day. So uh, I'm just going to keep telling more ga- or keep writing more games that hopefully facilitate people telling, you know, personal and emotional stories. Terrific. Well, other than that, I mean, just thanks so much for coming on the show and just taking some time to chat with me. Thank you so much for, uh, you know, making the time and inviting me to be on here. Uh, I'm uh, super, super uh, excited and uh, um, kind of amazed that you asked me. So thank you. Oh, no, totally, totally my pleasure. If uh, if my listeners want to keep up with you and what you're working on and what you're doing and talking about, um, where is the best place for them to do that? Uh, you can uh, always check my website, which is Camden, C-A-M-D-O-N dot com. Camden dot... How, that, how did you get Camden dot com? So uh, it used to belong to a, uh, a medical supply company. And uh, I emailed them once uh, joking around about, hey, you've got my name uh, as your URL and gosh darn it, I'm disappointed. And whoever it was that responded just sent me the nastiest email. (gasps) And so uh, I put it on uh, a watch list and um, they went, they eventually went out of business and I snatched it up immediately. And uh, I think the because I was a little spiteful at that point in my life. Um, I, I think that it, for like six months, uh, all it did was say, who's laughing now? Oh <laughs> but that was, that was, that, that was a really long time ago. Um, wow. See, this is what I'm saying, man. Deep, dark secrets, deep, deep, dark secrets. You should just. This is the true dark backstory of Camden. <laughs> Camden, right. <laughs> okay. Well, awesome. Camden.com. Uh, now I'm going to laugh every time I go to your website. 
well, again, thanks. This was really awesome. It was really great chatting with you and and learning um, learning your excellent opinions and and your terrible uh, terrible dark past. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks again to Camden for joining us, and as always, thank you for listening. If you have thoughts on the show, feel free to email backstorypodcast at gmail.com or follow at backstorycast on Twitter. And if you like what you just heard, consider becoming a Patreon supporter and help make more great shows like Asians Represent. Asians Represent celebrates Asian creators and diversity in the gaming community. Join the hosts Agatha Chang and Daniel Kwan as they discuss gaming, genre, and representation with their guests and occasionally argue with each other to the sound of Agatha's beloved Airhorn app. Find Asians Represent and much more at oneshotpodcast.com. Music for Backstory is provided by Ujiko. The track is called Thinking of You, and you can hear more by searching UJICO wherever you get your chill beats. Talk to you later, friends. Thank you.